0: Lord, you are good to us, and um, we pray as that song, as, as we pray as we sang earlier that um, your spirit would illuminate the scriptures, um, that we could become wise, and that we could um, see who you are clearly, and see who we are clearly, and see the ways in which you want to make us more like you, and the ways that you um, want us to um, continue to pursue you. Uh, for the rest of our lives. Lord, we love you, and we're grateful that you meet with us and that you speak to us through your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Uh, I'm excited to continue our Super Summer Sermon Series uh, today, uh, The Kingdom Family. And um, uh, if you want to go ahead and open up your, your holy books or your holy apps or whatever you seem to have, to Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6. We just finished Exodus after like two years and we're going back to Exodus already. Uh, We're not going to stay there all day so don't don't worry. Um, Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 is where we're going to start today so go ahead and get there. Um, Last week Bryce got us going um, with our um, sermon series with the kingdom family by preaching about how our families are designed to be Christ's instrument of enlarging his kingdom on earth. Uh, families are the foundation of the church, so as our families go, so will the church go. Uh, and as our uh, as our families go, so will our society go. Bryce discussed that some last week, and so if we are willing to hear and obey the commands of God in Scripture, then the legacy we leave will be one that glorifies God and builds his kingdom. So I want to kind of connect. On, connect to that today and, uh, and, and build out from there, and as we're going to continue to do throughout the rest of the summer, I'm really excited about the series, and I think it will be beneficial for everyone, whether you are uh, a single person or a married person without children or a married person with children or a married person with lots of children, as some of us find ourselves in that boat, um, or uh, a person whose children no longer live in the home, uh, a single parent or a grandparent, or anything else that I've missed, aunts, uncles, uh, all of these family roles matter and are important to the kingdom of God. And so I think that this series will be beneficial to you. I know that this series will be beneficial to you no matter where you find yourself, um, what station you find yourself in life. So if the topic for the sermon on any given day does not immediately resonate as something like, oh, this is me, don't check out because it's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for all of us, and I'm excited about that. Before we uh, uh, jump into Exodus chapter 20 today, I want to talk a little bit about the year 1916. 1916. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was the president, and the U.S. had not even entered World War I. So this is, this is back there. This is a long time ago. The price of gas in 1916 was about 21 and a half cents a gallon. Uh, Richard Nixon was three years old, Ronald Reagan was four. It was a year before John F. Kennedy was even born. Piggly Wiggly, which was the first self-service grocery store, uh, opened in Memphis in 1916. And Lexi's great-grandfather helped build it, actually. And her dad still has some of his tools and stuff, so it's, it's pretty rad. Um, the, the hamburger bun was invented in 19... Can you imagine a world without hamburger buns? The hamburger bun was invented in, invented in 1916 by the eventual founder of the wonderful institution known as White Castle. Uh, Yes. The, the population of Memphis in 1916 were somewhere around 162,000 people. It is four times that now. I couldn't find census data for Horn Lake before 1940. But in 1940, there were only 200 people in Horn Lake. So I imagine that there, there weren't a ton of people here in 1916. 1916 was nine years before the Peabody Hotel was opened. Uh, it was 15 years before the Empire State Building was built. It was 40 years before Alaska and Hawaii became states. So this is a completely different completely different world we live in. Uh, 1916 was the year that this mandolin was made. Uh, this is a uh, Gibson A-style mandolin. It was designed by Orville Gibson himself, uh, who was the founder of the Gibson Mandolin and Guitar Manufacturing Company. Around the turn of the century, around 1900, uh, Orville designed two... Um, Two mandolins, two kind of styles of mandolin. This one and one that has kind of a curly Q top. You've probably seen those before at somewhere in your life. Um, And these were revolutionary designs. No one had ever made mandolins like this before. A lot of them had like the big bowl back on them, and they were really very Italian looking and kind of hard to hold. And um, anyway, so these designs revolutionized the making of mandolins and became like the standard designs mandolin for like up until this day if you go, if you see anyone playing a mandolin uh, unless they're you know, at some sort of historical museum exhibit where they have super old mandolins, they're going to be playing one that looks like this or one that has the curly Q thing on top, and that's all because of Warble Gibson Um, they sounded great they were comfortable to play and they were affordable and so they became insanely popular and then the guitars followed soon after, because Gibson guitars are great um, this mandolin s- shows its age in places, uh, as most 103-year-olds would. Uh, there's kind of a little bit of, a wear, a little bit of wear right here. Uh, there's some nicks and dings. The neck has a little bit of a bow to it that makes it a little bit, you know, it's kind of curved a little. So it's a little harder to play than it would have been in 1916. But listen to it. After 103 years, this thing still sings, and it sounds great, you know? Uh, I can't imagine, like, everything it's been through. Like, I wonder who all has owned it. I wonder how many times it's been sold. You know, where has that thing been played? Family gatherings, around the campfire. Did somebody play it at the Grand Ole Opry? Probably not. But, you know, like, where has it been? Who's played it? What, what situations was it in the room for? Uh, and, uh, you know, I wonder if anybody who ever played this thing imagined that it would still be singing in the year 2019. It, it's outlasted most of the people who have ever played it, probably. Um, it, it is an American beauty that was built to last. And that's what I love about it. Um, so whatever, whether you realize it or not, you are presently building something with your life. Um, whether you realize it or believe it to be true, it is true. You will leave a legacy of some kind. Your actions will have consequences on those around you and those who will follow you. Uh, so, what we'll see today is that we have a choice in the matter of what we build, and that choice is rooted in the way that we worship individually and as families. Um, and, and so, you know, we're going to be talking about family worship and, and what that looks like. Uh, family worship doesn't exist out of a vacuum. It is it's rooted in something so we're going to kind of start one place and end in another place so we're going to uh start in exodus chapter 20 uh today by talking about idolatry which is super fun and cheery uh our our first point for the day is the consequences of our actions outlive us consequences of our actions outlive us let's read uh, exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 together it says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments Uh, letter a under point one is a heritage of idolatry uh, when we studied this passage in October, Bryce taught us this command uh, forbids cutting and shaping idols, right, uh, to worship, even representations of the Lord himself. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to, like, preach that sermon all over again. But I am going to connect it to what we're talking about today. Um, so we're not supposed to, to, to make idols to worship or, or even uh, anything that represents the Lord himself. We are not to worship the creation. We are to worship the creator, All creation is meant to point us to God, not to be worshipped as God. Uh, These graven images become objects of false worship, or they lead us into false worship of the true God. Idolatry is at the heart of all of our sin because, as Bryce said, it's easier to create a bunch of little gods to worship than to trust in one God who has all of that power. We can't control or predict or contain a God who has all of that power. And so, as believers, we are constantly battling to put away our idols and to put away our tendencies for false worship, just like Israel was. We are not much different than them, and it is, it is arrogant. I almost said it's ignorant. That's true. That's true. Uh, it's ignorant and arrogant to think that we are any different than them. Um, like Bryce mentioned last week, our morals are not necessarily better because we live in 2019. We are not more spiritually enlightened because of the age that we live in. Our idols just look different now. That's all there is to it. Humans are made to worship, and they will, without exception, worship something. All we do with our worship is aim it at something. Somebody else said that, and I tried really hard to find who said that first, but I couldn't find it. So that's not, that's not an idea that's original to me, but it's true. We are made to worship, we're going to worship, and all, we, all that we do, all that we have control over is where we aim our worship. We probably do not have a golden calf set up in our living room, but we might worship the idol of constant busyness or the idol of laziness or the idol of the job or the idol of children or the idols of others opinions or the idol of social media or the idol of a relationship or the idol of getting what you deserve or the idol of giving others what they deserve or the idol of political principles or the idol of sex or the idol of control, or the idol of sports, or the idol of hate, or the idol of selfishness, or the idol of knowing everything. I could literally go on all day because this is what our hearts do. We manufacture things to worship. We manufacture things that uh, are important to us, but things that we think we can have some sort of control over to worship. We must regularly be asking ourselves, where am I aiming my worship? And we must answer honestly, Uh, even when the answer makes us feel uncomfortable. I want to spend the bulk of our time today thinking about how the culture of worship we build personally and in our families affects those around us and the generations to come, for better or for worse. The second commandment tells us that the sin of idolatry, of worshiping creation rather than the creator, is the same as hating God. We convince ourselves that isn't true, but it is. Uh, Listen to what Psalm 115 says about idols and those who worship them. Our God is in the heavens. The most unnerving part of that passage is the part at the end where it says those who make them will become like them. Those who make and worship idols will become like one with a mouth that can't speak, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear. They become hollow and dead. Whitewashed tombs is what Jesus called it. Idolatry can create the appearance of something worthwhile and good while hiding death underneath. God said that the punishment for the sin of idolatry would be that he would visit the iniquity on the, father, the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate them. the consequence of idolatry is that generations to come will be affected by the sins of their fathers Bryce taught us that this doesn't mean that we have to pay for or atone for the sins of those who come before us because we aren't punished for sins that we didn't commit but unless we acknowledge and deal with the sins of those who have come before us they will likely become our sins too we have to think about that. And we have to realize that. And likewise, we must consider the fact the effects of our own worship on our children and grandchildren and so on. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 18 is an appropriate example. Write that down if you're taking notes. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 18. At this point, the nation of Israel is split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and in about 740 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. And so uh, this passage in Second Kings uh, talks about that. So listen to this while I, I read it. I wanted to cut this passage down, but it tells the story. like the, It's like the illustrated story of the command we just read. So listen to what it says. It says, uh, referring to the Assyrian captivity. And this occurred... Because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings that the, Israel, the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified cities. They set up for themselves pillars and Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And, they, and there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord, this is grace, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Like, guys, please, turn away from all this stuff. You know what I expect of you. That hasn't changed. I haven't changed. Everything the prophets are saying is everything I told Moses years and years ago. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil on the side of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And they didn't last much longer after that either. The people of Israel made and served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. It wasn't even like, vague. it wasn't like, a, maybe this is okay. but No, he said, do not do this, and they did it. The Lord warned them to repent and to keep his commandments, but they wouldn't listen. They had ears that didn't hear. They went after false idols and became false, right? Those who make them and those who trust in them become like them, and that is what had happened to Israel. This wasn't something that just happened over the course of a few years. Their culture of idolatry persisted for generations. They were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God, for generation after generation, until it was unredeemable without some sort of catastrophe. Right? It wasn't like, it went a couple of years, started going down the wrong road, and God was like, all right, y'all are going into captivity. Like He had mercy, and he had grace on them, and he warned them, and he tried to bring them back. But eventually, he had to send in the Assyrians. He had to allow that terrible thing to happen to them for them to see. So once a pattern for false worship was set up, it was easy to keep around and even push forward to the point that they were sacrificing their own children to these idols. And uh, in, so, in, well, I'll talk about Hezekiah in a second. But Hezekiah was a king in Judah, and his dad sacrificed one of his brothers to an idol. Right? Can you imagine that? Hezekiah tried to buck the buck the system there and change things, but that, that's what was going on. And that's not something that happens quickly. You don't wake up one day and just decide to sacrifice your children to an idol. One generation lets this little thing slide. And the next generation lets all that slide, but adds a little bit more to it, and on and on and on, constantly rationalizing and explaining away the commands of God, why this is okay, why it's not that big of a deal. Or worse, trying to syncretize what God said with false worship, with things that uh, other people were doing for worship that was not for God. But once something is the status quo, it takes a lot for the system to be bucked and for true change to happen. So we cannot take this lightly. We cannot take the sin of idolatry lightly. Where are you aiming your worship? If you don't know how to answer that question, answer these questions. To what do you devote most of your time, your effort, your money, your attention, and your affection? That's what you're worshiping. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We can tell ourselves that Christ is our treasure and that he's the center of our lives and that we believe the Bible— but it's all a bunch of garbage if it does not control every other aspect of our life. right? We can convince ourselves that things are true that are not. Jesus shouldn't just affect every aspect of our lives. He should control every aspect of our lives. That is what is at stake here. Our days on earth are short, and the consequences of our actions will outlive us. The sins of the fathers can easily become the sins of the next generation and the generation after that. But here's the catch. Each generation has a choice To either continue with the ways of those who came before them, or to change. Nobody is stuck in their father's sin or under some mysterious family curse. The choice to leave a legacy of idolatry or a legacy of God-glorifying worship is your choice. Uh, The generational effects of sin can be broken because of Jesus. Listen to what Romans 6 says about it. Uh, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's referring to the sin of Adam, so one act of righteousness through jesus leads to justification in life for all men for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous through christ sin no longer has dominion over us and we have a choice and it can be we can make a good one it is possible the last part of the second, man, second command says that though the iniquity of the fathers will be visited on the third and fourth generation of those that hate God, God would show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Some translations say to the thousandth generation. So to look more at the positive side of this command um, of leaving a heritage of worship, I want to turn to Psalm 103. You can go there uh, with your, your apps or your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 103. We're going to read verses 15 through 19. We, um, we prayed a prayer a few weeks ago that was based on this passage. It's a wonderful. One of my favorite psalms. Psalm 103, verses 15 through 19. It says this. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So a heritage of worship, that's a B under under this point. Our lives here are brief and then gone to the point that it says that our, our place will know us no more. I've thought about this uh, lately. There is a, uh, there's a small family cemetery in my neighborhood that they kind of built the neighborhood kind of around. Like, it's, it predated the neighborhood by a lot of years. So kind of at the back of the neighborhood, there's a small family cemetery. It's been kind of fenced off. And uh, there are three graves there that you can read the markers on. There are some unreadable ones. Uh, the three people that you can read, uh, one died in 1841, the other died in 1842, and the last one died in 1853. There is no one alive who remembers these people, and there hasn't been for generations. No one who knows anyone who ever knew them visits their grave. Most of the people who visit their graves are the people who are walking their dogs in our neighborhood. right? Nobody remembers them. The only thing we, we know about the, these people are where they seem to have lived, which was you know, in the back of my neighborhood, uh, uh, that we know their names, and when they were born and when they died, and there's some, some vague public record stuff about them. But that's it. Nobody remembers them. And the same is going to happen to us, as much as we hate to admit it, as much as we try our best. It's, a hum, it's human nature to try to, like, you know, uh, get some sort of immortality, something that will live on after we are gone, right? But people are going to forget us. We will not be remembered. Um, we will be forgotten on earth, but the steadfast love of the Lord will not. And our carrying on in his will affects generations to come in ways that nothing else about our lives can a good example of this is found in the Apostle Paul's student, Timothy. Uh, write these down, because this, uh, this is beautiful. Second Timothy, you can just read the whole letter, it's great. Uh, but 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And later in chapter 3, uh, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which, you, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because of the faithful worship of Timothy's grandmother and mother, he was acquainted with the truth of scripture from childhood. He heard and saw the tr- what true worship of God was all about because of the living examples in his life who heard and believed and obeyed, which eventually led to his hearing believing and obeying and here we are two thousand years later discussing them we know nothing about lois and eunice besides their names their god and the fruit of their worship and that's the kind of legacy we should leave it's not about us our legacies are not about us about people remembering what a great guy grandpa so-and-so was our legacy is about passing on the truth of scripture and passing on the gospel and for them to know that the steadfast love of the lord lasts forever in the same way, um, in the same way that no one is trapped is trapped under a generational curse or uh, some sort of punishment because of their preceding generation's sin, because of Jesus, no one is automatically every uh, redeemed follower of Christ because their parents and grandparents were. Right. The same is true on the positive side of this. Lois and Eunice believed and obeyed, but Timothy had to believe just the same. Charles Spurgeon said this about applying these verses from Psalm 103. Uh, he said, From the manner in which some men unguardedly preach the covenant, uh, that's the idea of this generational blessing thing, uh, from the way that those guys preach, one might infer that God would bless a certain set of men however they might live and however they might neglect his laws, but the word teaches us not so. The covenant is, le- is not legal, but It is holy. It is all grace, from first to the last, yet it is no panderer to sin. On the contrary, one of its greatest, greatest promises is that I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. The general aim of this covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus' blood, its general aim is the sanctifying of a people unto God, zealous for good works, and all of its gifts and operations work in that direction. So you don't just get to... And this is like a popular thing for preachers to preach. You're not a Christian just because your granddaddy was a preacher, right? But it's true, right? It can have a wonderful and great effect on you, but it does not make you a Christian. So in examining this same passage, uh, John Piper asked the question, uh, how can our children, and, and us as well, how can we become the beneficiaries of God's righteousness rather than be condemned by it? And the answer is that, according to, to Psalm 103 here, is that it's by fearing him, that's coming to him reverently, humbly, trembling without, without any kind of presumption. By keeping his covenant, that's the new covenant in Christ, the covenant of his blood, and by doing his commandments. The, obedient, the obedience to his commandments is a fruit of true faith in the Redeemer. It's real trust, it's real submission to him. This kind of true worship changes us. It is uh, completely and inextricably linked to our sanctification, our being made holy in heart and in conduct. In the same way that those who make and worship false idols become false like them, so do those who follow and obey Jesus become like him. Instead of becoming false, we become truer, more like who we were meant to be from the beginning. And as we are sanctified... We create within our lives an atmosphere and an environment of true worship that affects those who come after us. So this brings us to our second major point, which is that because the consequences of our sins outlive us, build something that matters. Build something that matters. Uh, I want to return to the passage that Sam read earlier for us. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Go there, go there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. We don't do this enough, this whole like, you know, turn turn in your Bible or go to the Scripture there. It's on the screen, and I want it to be there. But if you've got a Bible, look it up. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates this confession of faith is called the shema and it's 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 like a really uh it's an, it's kind of an umbrella under, under which the rest of the law rests Uh, And we can draw a few conclusions uh, from the Shema about what worship in the family should be like. Uh, At the very beginning, we see again God's claim to exclusivity, right? He is one, there is no other, and his people should love him sincerely and supremely, right? Uh, Our obedience to his commands is rooted in this love for him. Connected to that love, in verse 6 it says, "...and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart." His word should be on our hearts. How does this happen? through personal spiritual disciplines. That's A under this point, personal spiritual disciplines. I don't know if we can stress this enough, but the Christian life cannot flourish without the core spiritual disciplines of studying scripture, praying, and assembling for corporate worship. These are the sun, the water, and the soil that the Christian needs to stay alive and healthy spiritually. If we want to establish a culture of worship in our family, we must begin with our personal devotional life. Are you reading scripture daily? Are you And I'm I'm saying this to myself here. Are you reading scripture daily? Are you studying and memorizing? Are you filling your mind and heart with his words? These words are going to be on our hearts that we might obey them, then we must, we must keep a steady diet of scripture. What you get on Sunday mornings and at MC gatherings is not enough for that. You have to do it on your own. It seems elementary because it is. We forget the elementary things. Very often, when there is a spiritual problem in my own life, or I'm talking with someone else and there's a spiritual problem in their life, uh, it exists in part because they've unplugged from their personal spiritual disciplines. They're not spending time in Scripture. They're not spending time in prayer. They're compromising the time that they get to spend with their church family. It's what keeps us healthy. Are you uh, Are you praying without ceasing? Praying before meals is good but is that all that we're doing? Do you pray before and while you read Scripture? Do you pray throughout your day? Do you pray for more than what you want or need? Do you pray for the needs of other people? Do you give praise to God in your prayers? Talk to God in prayer. Are you faithfully assembling for corporate worship? That is, are you here? And two, when you're here, are you really here? Right? Like, are you playing, playing, doing random things on your phone? Are you having random conversations during worship? Like, The thing about corporate worship that is beautiful, uh, one of the many things, is that it is beneficial for all of us to be here with each other being here, right? If we can be in this moment together, in the presence of God, worshiping together, that's what affects us. That's why we need corporate worship. Uh, uh, And that's even apart from, you know, the the glorifying God and worshiping Him because He's holy and all that, because all that's true. But the benefits for us are that we are here together experiencing the same thing and that we're not distracted. So the, it, the thing about corporate worship also is that it adds fuel to the fire of your personal spiritual life, to your devotional life. And then your devotional life adds fire, as fuel to the fire of corporate worship and back and forth and back and forth. It's a cycle, and it's in that cycle where our family worship rests. So that's why I wanted to, to start with all those things, because without that stuff, family worship is just another thing that we've added to the list of things that we do right? We have to aim our worship back in the right direction. And we have to and we do that with our personal spiritual listeners. We have to be personally plugging in and walking in the spirit by seeing what scripture says and talking to God about it and worshiping together with other people. So fi- finally, here, to be is family worship. Letter B is family worship. In verses 7-9 through nine, it says uh, you shall teach them God's commands diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The general vibe here is that worshiping as a family happens on purpose and it is conspicuous. It says that God's people ought to teach uh, teach His commands diligently to their children. It's an active, careful, attentive loving, and most of all, persistent effort. If we're going to build a legacy of family worship, it's not going to happen by accident or with uh, haphazard effort. We must persevere toward what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. That's what's going to affect change. Also note that this is not a suggestion. It is a command. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently don't get the impression that personal spiritual disciplines and family worship are like electives that we can take or leave as Christians. They are not. They are expected of all all Christians, regardless of stature or maturity or notoriety. These are like the run-of-the-mill, everyday, average expectations for the Christian. Like, this is like the lowest fence there is. You're not trying to get into seminary here. You're not, like, every Christian. That's what's expected of us. It specifically says that we should teach our children... And I'll get to some more uh, practical application of that in just a minute. But it goes beyond just reciting Psalm 23 or John 3:16. We've got to talk about what Scripture means and how it applies to our lives. And if you are without children, this applies to you too. Uh, remembering that Colossians 3, verse 16 says this, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you're a single person, it's reasonable to say that we ought to be teaching these commands diligently to our nieces and nephews. If you're married without children, you're teaching it to your spouse. Uh, we are teaching to our, our church family. Like We should be teaching each other diligently, letting the Word dwell in us, and then building each other up with it, whether you have children or not. Beyond teaching, we're told to talk of God's Word when we sit in our houses, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise. The Word of God should permeate every corner of our lives, however dusty or dark that corner might be. Compartmentalization is incompatible with the Christian life. I'll say that again because I think it's important. Compartmentalization is incompatible with the Christian life. If you keep God in the Sunday compartment and don't let him out into the rest of your life, then you're practicing idolatry, right? The thing that Christians... Don't, many Christians don't understand is that the gospel and the commands of scripture relate to every area of life. It's not that like what happens on Sunday is like disconnected and it's like this special thing. No, it, it, it connects intimately with everything else. If you feel your heart and mind uh, with something, you will noticing it, notice it coming up in your daily conversations and as you deal with day-to-day issues. If you have an office quote for every situation that you are in, then surely the word of God can affect you more deeply than that, right? Surely the Holy Spirit is more capable than Michael Scott is, right? Now, quote The Office. Do it a lot. It's funny, right? But this is what Scripture can do to us. If you fill your mind and your heart with it, you will notice it coming up. I'm not talking about forcing the Bible into every conversation or situation, right? Uh, I once heard a guy say this example, like, you're sitting at dinner, and you say, can you please pass the bread? Did you know that Jesus is the bread of life? I know. That's not like, you, we don't have to be awkward and weird, but as you take in Scripture personally and as a family, it will come up naturally in your conversation. As you work your garden, or as you deal with sibling conflict, or as you make decisions, as you take a walk around the neighborhood, or you discipline your kids, or as you explain why you do things a certain way, it will come up, and you can connect it with Scripture. Why do you do things? Well, the Bible says we should do this. That's why I'm doing this. Why does that tree look like that? Well, I don't really know exactly. We can probably go figure that out, but God made it that way. God made that tree and that tree unique, right? It will come up in in, in a myriad of ways. Have you ever said that word out loud before? I think that's the first time I've said myriad. That's the second time. How about that? And I think I mispronounced it both times. Uh, so when these things come up, uh, talk about them. Sometimes it might be a 30-second conversation and sometimes it might be a 30-minute conversation. But as you live your life, Talk of the commands of God, purposeful and conspicuous family worship will lead to this. Okay, so what is family worship supposed to look like, right? Like, where is the the uh, the scripture with our order of worship? There isn't one, so that's helpful, right? Uh, in the same way that there's no order of worship for uh, corporate worship, right? There's not a a a list where it says first you should have a song and then you should have a prayer and then you should have communion or whatever there's not one for family worship but there are uh, a few things that we can pick up from scripture that should be a part of our worship Um, we see throughout the bible examples of parents teaching their children diligently and then we also see uh, examples of people whose whose parents that we are never told their names but clearly they taught their children diligently the one I always think of is Mary. Uh, when the angel appears to her and says, you're going to have a baby, and his name's going to be called Jesus, and all that kind of stuff, she responds with this song, the Magnificat is what it's called. And if you read that song, it's chock full of quotes from the Old Testament and, and, and the Psalms, and it's just beautiful, right? That didn't come out of a vacuum, right? So the, the idea of family worship, it's not something that's like specifically prescribed uh, in a this is how you do it sort of thing. It's a this is the fruit of what happens. And it's beneficial because uh, we can adapt it according to our culture and according to our family and according to our season of life, which is one of the same reasons there's no list for what we do in corporate worship, right? It can be adapted uh, according to culture and age and all that. Uh, So I'm going to be sharing several resources for you today uh, that can help us understand better what Scripture teaches about family worship. And the first is this book by Donald Whitney. Uh, it is a short read. It's five chapters. It is 64 pages, right? There's, and it's, it's not written like a deep theology book or something. Uh, there's no reason why you can't read this. Even still, it's on Audible, right? So you can listen to it if you want. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of the, several of the principles I'm about to talk about are in this book, Family Worship, in the Bible, and History, and in Your Home. Uh, it talks about what family worship, worship looked like in the Bible and in history and what it can look like in our home as the, the, the title illustrates. So this is a, a really good uh, book and a good resource. Uh, so the essential elements, according to... Oh, also, right this instant, I'm going to post a link in the Vintage uh, Communication group on the Facebook that lists a, a ton of the helpful family worship and personal devotion sort of stuff uh, resources. And uh, so you can check this out. A lot of the stuff I'm about to talk about is on this list. If I can actually get a space in the post here. So take a look at this later on because it will be helpful. And you can dig in and figure out how this is going to look in your family. Uh, So the essential elements for family worship, according to Mr. Whitney, are to read, to pray, and to sing. Write that down. Read scripture together, pray together, and sing together. Whatever it looks like logistically, those are the three common threads that are going to run through our family worship. Um, Logistically speaking, family worship should be brief, regular, and flexible. Write that down too. Brief, regular, and flexible. I think they're on the screen. Yeah, number two is uh, be brief, regular, and flexible. This is going to look different from family to family, depending on whether or not you have children in the home, and if you do, how old your children are. If you are single without children, Reading, praying, and singing should be a part of your personal spiritual disciplines. And if you have the opportunity to worship with your parents or your siblings or with another family in our church, you should take that opportunity whenever you can. If you are married without children in the home, then your family worship exists in duo form. If you are a parent with children, your family worship will be the most exciting. Um, So let's talk about reading scripture first. Uh, Married folks without children, pick a book of the Bible and read through it together discuss what you see in scripture. Parents with children, first pick something that is age appropriate and then read through it in a logical way. Uh, The word of God does not return void no matter what version you're using or whatever, but it is often more immediately beneficial for young children to to use a story bible or a translation with simpler language. Uh, When Lexi and I first started considering what family worship meant, we were looking to the example of uh some people who were worshiping with their families and it was uh, a beautiful thing i didn't really know where else to start ella was an infant and so i remember she was laying there on the floor babbling and drooling and whatever and i'm like reading from a from a grown-up bible like just a passage straight out of uh i think we were reading through the bible that year like all the way through and we were out in some old testament passage reading whatever to a, an infant who was you know, had no skills. but we all have to start somewhere right um So uh, here are a few of the story Bibles that have been helpful for us. This is the Rhyme Bible. The Rhyme Bible was given to us when Ella was an infant, and it goes through a lot of the important stories in Scripture, and it rhymes. Kids love stuff that rhymes, right? And if you're like Blake and me, you don't just rhyme it, you rap it, right? Uh, So it's really great, and it, it plants the seed of understanding, uh, in your kids' minds, and they hear a lot of those stories. So, so the Rhyme Bible is really good for toddlers, uh, although I realized as I was preparing for this that we haven't started using this with the twins yet. We're going to because I've got it now. Um, the next one is the Beginner's Bible. It does not rhyme, but it covers more stories than the Rhyme Bible does. It kind of covers more of, of Scripture. It's in simple language, uh, and again, it's, it's planting the seeds. It's giving those stories, and there's some stories in here that you wouldn't expect to be in a children's Bible, but they are which is good because a lot of children's Bible avoid the weird ones and you know, if they avoid the 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 hard stories and the ones that don't make a lot of sense this one doesn't do that as much so I like that about the beginner's Bible it's good uh the Jesus storybook Bible is my favorite this is like my and you can this is our second copy and it's it's on its last leg too uh it's my favorite one it is beautifully written it is beautifully illustrated it makes me cry on a regular basis. Uh, and it's wonderful. It takes um, a lot of the stories in Scripture and points them to Jesus and shows the reader uh, how all of these Old Testament commands and, uh, and, and prophecies and kings and all these people lead to Jesus. And then it shows what Jesus has accomplished. And it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, as a, You could buy this as a grown-up and be edified by it. It is wonderful. Um, most of our time these days... We are hanging out with the Seek and Find Bible, so this this I like this a lot, and it's it's uh, published under a different name now I think, but the Seek and Find Bible it has uh, the entire text of the English Standard Version right in here, but it also has like these highlighted kind of story um, pages, so it takes stories and kind of summarizes them, but uses quotes from the actual scripture. Uh, we're about tonight we're going to read about Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, and uh, at the end. It tells you where to find the story. It has a key Bible verse. And then it has discussion questions, right? This is, like, so great and so easy because there are discussion questions built in that show you, that help, that help get everybody talking about what you just read. And a lot of these questions point it right back to Jesus, too. So the ESV Seek and Find Bible, all this stuff is in the, the document that I linked. And you can come up here when we're done and, and take pictures and look at this stuff because it's really good. Uh, i put that right there. So uh, the point is, whatever one you use, just read the Bible together, right? If you don't have any of these kids' Bibles, or just open up the Scripture and read it. It will be beneficial. And then find, some, find the one that works best for your family. And it's going to change as your kids get older, right? It's changing right now for us. So as your kids get older, it's going to change. Just read the Bible. That's the point. Two, pray together. Uh, this isn't complicated. After you read the Bible, pray together for a few minutes. This applies whether you have kids in the home or not. You can take turns praying. You can pray the scripture you just read. Uh, One helpful idea that we've adopted is to have a weekly prayer calendar. So on every day, you're praying for certain people. On Sundays, we pray for the kid we we sponsor through Compassion. On Mondays, we pray for my dad and my grandmother and my brother. On Tuesdays, we pray for missionaries that we know. On Wednesday, we pray for Lex's parents and on and on and on, right? That way you have, like, a, a, a focused time of prayer. And you might pray for people regularly that you wouldn't, you'd kind of forget about otherwise. Uh... And it helps give some direction to your prayers. Um, it also helps us to get away from ourselves and and think about other people instead of just praying about, you know, whatever's going on in our lives. Uh, as your kids get older, you can use some different prayer books, uh, like The Valley of Vision, which we get a lot of our Sunday prayers from. This belongs to Blake, and I've had it for like two years, and I'm going to give it back to him today. The Valley of Vision can be good uh, for your older kids. Uh, also, I love this book. It's called Every Moment Holy. It's kind of liturgies for everyday stuff for planting a garden or changing diapers or you name it there's a bunch of stuff in here and it's beautiful and they can kind of lead you through uh through prayer and get you focused on the lord and those things three sing together read together read scripture together pray together sing together don't come at me with a whole i'm not musical bit okay that's i I realize i'm a musician and i use the mandolin for what that's not what i'm talking about uh in in modern evangelical culture Music has become like synonymous with like, that's when we really feel the spirit moving, right? Like that's that's really when the spirit does its work when we're singing together. Uh, There's a story that Rich Mullins used to tell that I love. After a concert, somebody came up to him and was like, "You know, I, I I love your music. The concert was great. And you know, when you were singing this one song." The part where it, where it gets to the—they explain the part in the song. When it got to that part, I just I felt the Spirit move in me so much, and it was such a blessing, whatever. And Rich Mullins looked at her and said, that wasn't the Spirit. That's when the kick drum and the bass guitar came in, <laughs> right? Like, he was very uh, cut and dry about that sort of thing. Singing together, is, is it's not about that. It's not about having some emotional experience that makes us feel the presence of God, right? It doesn't even have to be pretty. It doesn't even have to be a part of, like, your nightly family worship. It can, and then that can be good. You can turn on a recording of a song uh, and sing along with it. You can, If you have a guitar or a piano or something in your house, you can play and sing a song. But the point is here, we're not planning, like, a Sunday morning gathering. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're just trying to sing together, to turn our hearts to God in that way. Uh, the way it works in our house is that we read the Bible, we discuss it, we pray. Then the kids go get in bed. And we go to you know tuck them in, and at the uh, they always want a bedtime story from me, so I tell them a story, and then I'll sing a song. Usually, it's a verse or a chorus of a hymn that we do, or a song that we do here regularly. And if you if you kind of like return to the same songs over and over again, they get stuck in in their heads, and it starts to shape the way that we think. Um, uh, this kind of thing can also be more casual, like just in as you listen to music around the house or in the in the car put some quality worship songs or hymns into the mix right you don't have to like stop listening to taylor swift to listen to only hymns right uh because why would you stop listening to taylor swift uh uh it can be it can be casual uh the more if you if like i said if you return if you listen to the same songs regularly and you sing these songs with your kids they, they they seep into your brain they become a part of the way that you process things and the way that you think um and oftentimes, when your faith is challenged, when something comes up, the first thing that happens is a song comes to mind. You know? That's what happened. When I was talking about uh, reading the Rhine Bible and I said something about planting the seed of understanding, that came from a song. It just I didn't plan on saying that. It came from a song that we listen to with our kids. Um, if you need help finding some good music, there is a seven-hour-long playlist on the document that I posted in the group earlier the vintage church playlist and it's a bunch of songs that we do here that are that are good and a couple that aren't so good those are mine uh, that was a joke but seriously there's a lot of good music on there and you can start there it's easy and free um there are also links in that document to a couple of artists who make uh, family oriented worship type music that does not make you want to pull out your hair like VBS music does um Quickly, I also want to talk about catechisms, which we've done some uh, of in our MCs. Um, learning the catechisms is, as a family is a beautiful way to spark spiritual conversations about the overarching themes of the, themes of the Bible. And a lot of our walking by the way sort of conversations uh, happen because they relate back to a catechism question that we've read. Um, the catechism that our family uh, and our MC uses is called a catechism for boys and girls, and there's a link to it in the document. But also, we found that the first place that we saw them was in these books here, uh, Truth and Grace Memory Books, uh, which were edited by Thomas A.S.C.O.L., and uh, uh, there's three of them, and so the the catechism questions are in here, there's a lot of really good scripture memory stuff in here, there's also some hymns in here that you can sing with your kids. So these are really great, and uh, so catechisms are super helpful, and that's not the only good catechism around, there are other ones, Uh, but that's what we use there. Um, so we read, we pray, and we sing. Um, whenever you meet, yeah, we read, we pray, pray, and we sing. Those are the important elements of family worship. It's pretty simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. It shouldn't be complicated. Whenever we meet for family worship, be brief, right? Seriously, five to ten minutes is plenty. Like, it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be complicated. Nobody has to preach a sermon. Nobody has to have an altar call. Be genuine, get it done, and then move on. There's no high standard to me. Be brief and be regular. Uh, Like I said before, it's not going to happen by accident. Family worship is not going to happen by accident. Uh, But you have to decide you're going to do it, and then you need to do it. Make it a priority or it will not happen. Turn off the television, leave your phone in the other room, and do it. Pick a time that works best for your family and stick to it. Ours is right before bedtime. Some people it's early in the morning, it's at breakfast. Whatever works for you, pick it and do it. Uh, once it becomes a part of your routine, it will seem weird to not do it. I know it might seem weird to try to get it going, but once you get it going, it seems weird to not do it. Trust me. So be brief, be regular, and be flexible. Uh, the last two weeks, uh, the girls had swimming lessons, and we kept forgetting to read the Bible before they went because when they come back, it's too late, and they just need to get in the bed. So nobody's going to go to hell if you forget a few times, right? Be flexible. As, as schedules change, as seasons change, as kids get older or whatever, you may need to change it. You may need to, to uh, move to a different part of the day. You may need to move to a different uh, uh, Bible. You may need to use a different resource. Whatever, be flexible. Don't beat yourself up about it. But also, don't let it slide. Don't don't use being flexible as an excuse to like be like formless, right? Uh, do it, and just don't beat yourself up about it. So, uh, if you want to come up here uh, later and look at any of these uh, resources or take pictures or whatever. Feel free to do that. Also, like I said, they're linked um, in the document that I posted in the Facebook group. So do with those what you will. So as we close, I want to read one last verse from Ephesians chapter 5. It says this in verses 9 through 10. Uh, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What we build is not going to be perfect. But the Holy Spirit is in us. We, he can help us discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The important thing here is to trust the Holy Spirit and to try. Right, Dig into these resources. Find others that work for you. This is just what we've used as a family. Right, There are plenty of other things out there, other options. If this doesn't work for your family, find something that does. Uh, tap into the gifts that the Spirit has given uniquely to you. Right? He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Use what the Spirit has given to us. The Lord, um, if we try, the Lord will work through us. The Lord will work through our awkwardness and our fear and our weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And he who began a good work in us will complete it. If you are already excelling in spiritual disciplines and family worship, don't get complacent. Don't think you have arrived. Uh, Excel still more is what Scripture says. There are always more ways to learn and grow in these areas. There are always and there also there are always idols waiting to pop out of the fire. Right? There are always things in our lives waiting for us to just mold them into something we can worship. Even if we feel like we're walking in the sphere. So watch yourself lest you fall. The legacy we're hoping to leave is not about our posterity, it's about God's glory. So build the kingdom in your own family what we build in our families affects our community and what we build in our communities affects society as a whole. You are looking at an example of this principle. Uh, I know Christ because of the culture of worship that Gary and Gay Beasley built in their home. They were just trying to build the kingdom in their family. And I know Jesus because it accidentally spilled out four four houses down the street. Right? So this is going to affect generations to come, but it's going to affect the people around you. 100% it will. I know Jesus because of the family worship that existed in their family. And it changed me and it changed my family growing up. And it is changing my family still. This is the kind of legacy that we're talking about. And this is the choice that we can make. This is something that can happen. And it's not some uh, unreachable goal. It just starts by reading, praying, and singing and just doing it. Deciding to do it and do it. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good to us. We thank you that your commands, because of Jesus, are not a burden. They are something that we can do through the power of your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us to do that. You'd help us to obey. Help us to see what works best for our families and to lead them in worship in a way that honors you. And we pray that you would continue the work that you've been doing since the foundation of the world, drawing people to yourself. Help us to be faithful and to be thoughtful for our families. We love you. and pray in Christ's name.